So, Will. Yes? Today's movie paints what I'd say is a pretty realistic depiction of life for camp counselors. Yeah, it seems like a pretty terrible job. It seems like a terrible job that you also have a lot of fun doing when the campers aren't around. Yeah, because then you're just in the woods with your friends. Right. Like, when I was going to summer camp, like, the counselors had their own campsite where they all stayed, and it was legendary. Everyone was, like, always talking about all the cool stuff that was happening there. And in retrospect, I feel like it was, like, middle school boys talking about the girls' bathroom, about how there are, like, couches and stuff in there. Like, I think most of it was probably made up. See, I am on the fence, because when I went to camp, all of the counselors got one day each week that they were all off and had a night away from the camp. and. Usually some rich counselor's parents had a house on the lake, and they would all go stay in that house. And it easily could have been completely boring, or it probably could have been a drug-fueled sex bender that one night. I think sometimes it was one, and sometimes it was the other. Yeah, because after spending that much time with kids all the time, and you have one night a week with only other young adults because they're also all like 17 or 18 i'm sure right all of the counselors are younger than you and i are oh yes they were all freshmen in college usually and then the assistant counselors were like late high school aged it's weird to think about authority figures yeah of course when i was at camp one of my closest friends wasn't the counselor one year but it was the nurse (laughs) mark is this because you were like getting hurt so much Or your just natural (laughs) affinity as a child for adults led you to the nurse? Well, a little bit of both. But the first, like, three days in a row, I got hurt and got sent to the nurse. Every time I was like, I'm fine. And they were always like, you probably have a concussion. Again, I've never had a concussion. I have hit my head so many times. I think I have a pretty thick skull. I do appreciate them being cautious, though, because... There's the other version of camp counselors just, like, being incompetent and not taking care of kids. Yeah, it was definitely the more cautious side of things at this camp. But I kept going, and then it got to the point where the nurse was so nice and she'd give me a free drink every time I went. So anytime someone else got sick, I'd start taking them to the nurse. (laughs) And then my that was the year I was on a boat with my sister, and she stepped on a cushion, and it fell through into the engine. And she almost... Her toe pad almost got completely cut off on one of her toes. So then I had to walk her to the nurse also. And I think she ended up having to go to the town and get stitches. Yikes. But, you know, that's what happens when you're... (laughs) When the only responsible figures are your late high school-aged sister and a freshman in college. Yeah, the closest thing I ever had to a camp injury that I can remember was counselor imposed, which is... I think I've mentioned that for many years when I was in, like, elementary school, I attended Girl Scout camp. And the reason for that was that my sisters both went to Girl Scout camp and my mom was one of the, like, adults helping to run it. So (laughs) this Girl Scout camp, they had, like, all the different, like, camper groups based on your age and your leveling Girl Scouts. And then there was another one called Boys. And it was all the sons of counselors who, like, needed to be put somewhere during the day. That sounds like my worst nightmare (laughs) yeah you would not have cared for it i usually had a pretty good time but i think it was my first year so i would have been like five or six for some reason i was not along for something and so i was just like back at the campsite with our like teenage counselors and one of them got annoyed with me for talking too much shocker and put packaging tape over my mouth oh my god that feels very uh inappropriate to say the least yeah uh my mom was not happy how do you think that that is okay well here's the thing is i don't but i was also a small child and so i don't know what sort of consequences this person faced no i mean like how does the counselor think that's okay i couldn't tell you it's shocking what some people have just a little bit of power and it goes straight to their heads which is of course why almost all camp counselors are camp counselors or, I mean, a lot of them are just, like, really into the camp. Oh, there, yeah, that's the two strands of counselor. Yeah, like, I went to, um, then eventually Boy Scout camp for many summers, and the Girl Scout camp I went to was just a day camp. Boy Scout camp, which I went to through middle school and high school, was a week where you were, like, staying in the woods. We went outside Pittsburgh, and there were counselors there who would go year after year after year because they loved the camp. I also went year after year after year 
because I liked having a week where I could just sit and read in the woods and no one could bother me. Um, that tracks. Yeah. So, like, what's funny is, like, I went all the way through high school. And by the last couple of years, I had kind of done, like, all the merit badges. Because the way the camp was, you would, like, build, like, a class schedule of merit badges that you would get done in the course of a week. And there was at least one year, maybe two, where I took, like, two merit badges because I had done pretty much all of them. And so then I would just pack, like, six books in a bag and take them and just read for a week. Oh, my God. That would not have flowed at my camp. So that was the point then where they were aggressively trying to recruit me to be a counselor because they were like, you've been coming here longer than most of the counselors. You are older than many of the counselors. Why are you not just doing this? And I was like, no, I just want one week. Oh, my God. Now, my camp, of course, in the North Georgia mountains, opened in summer of 2020 for, I think, less than a month. Oh, had no. 800 confirmed cases of COVID what? and had to shut down. So it was like one of those camps. Oh, yes. Uh, YMCA camp in rural Georgia in the, like, Blue Ridge Mountains up Yikes. north. Ah, uh, a time. That's a real camp blood. <laughs> a real Camp Crystal Lake situation, except instead of Mrs. Voorhees, COVID said you have to stay closed. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So should we start talking about today's movie? I need one second because I realized I didn't make the points. Oh my god. Okay. Vamping, uh, speaking words. My god. The last point happens like 40 minutes into this hour and a half long There's movie. Not a lot of romance <laughs> in this movie, Mark, despite its about. reputation. And it's weird to make points because I did not catch a lot of names. Well, that's what Wikipedia is for. All right. Now you can transition us if you want. All right, everyone. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast digging into the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a couple of one-scene flirtations. (laughs) We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are starting our spooky times, unless we decide we started it with Dear Evan Hansen. I don't know. Um, We'll find out. We're looking at the 1980 slasher classic, Friday the 13th. Now, Will, had you seen a classic slasher before this? So, before this year, not really. Um, I had seen, like, the ending of Halloween on TV, but also the Halloween TV edit is fairly different (laughs) from the theatrical version. And not because of, like, censorship, but because they added stuff in from Halloween 2. Interesting. Back in September, I watched the original Halloween because I've been watching the John Carpenter movies along with Blank Check. So then, knowing we had this coming up, I decided to try and watch some others. So I also watched The Texas Chainsaw Massacre this week, ahead of Friday the 13th. I ran out of time to do Black Christmas or Nightmare on Elm Street, but, you know, this makes three for me, so I feel like I've got a couple of them. This was my first classic slasher. I haven't seen any. And I have to say, I understand why this is in the queer cinema canon. Because there's nothing <laughs> oh, inherently I think I know queer about the it. the one thing you're talking about. But it is just so campy. You couldn't possibly be talking about Betsy Palmer's performance. I couldn't be talking about anything else but also i will say the amount of just men in very little clothing throughout this movie from the beginning when we first see steve in like shorty short jean shorts and then all of the male counselors are walking around in just underwear sometimes a lot of skin in this flick yeah well i mean here's the thing this movie is definitely the worst of the classic slashers i watched and also this feels like a slasher pun. It is the most craven. <laughs> but the writer of the movie, Victor Miller, in 2008, he claimed that he had gotten a phone call that basically said, let's rip off Halloween, which had been a massive success in 1978. It was the most profitable movie of its year, one of the most profitable movies of all time in terms of box office to budget ratio. And they made it for like nothing. They made it for $550,000. So... They couldn't afford anybody famous. Like, they talked about Sally Field for Alice for a bit, and then they were like, nope, can't afford her. So their goal was just to, like, cast unknowns who were hot, including to the point that, like, Mark Nelson, who plays Ned, 
was asked to do his second audition in a bathing suit because they wanted to make sure he would be hot enough for the movie they were making. Well, that tracks based off of his attire in this movie. This is really the most horny teens of all of the slasher movies, right? Like, it must be. Certainly of the originals. I mean, I don't know where the sequels, especially for this one, go. The only thing I know about the sequels is that by 10, they're in space. Uh, The thing I know about the sequels is that um, Jason is in them and wears a hockey mask. Yes, which does not happen in this one. I spent a lot of the movie waiting for it, not least because I rented it through uh, AMC Movies On Demand, and the poster for the movie on there had a big hockey mask on it. It's definitely a series that has dramatically changed even between one and two, I think. Yeah, because... Between one and two, they decide Jason is alive and he's our new killer. And that there's something a little supernatural happening, too. Yes. And then they can't really get away from that because they kill him off in, I think, four? No, they kill him off in three. These numbers might be off. Four is there's a different person wearing the hockey mask. And then five is is five Jason lives where they bring him back. Yeah, I think there's one where they defrost him in space. That's Jason Axe. something. That's Jason Axe. That's the 10th one. But, like, it gets very crazy how they try and bring Jason back each time. Yeah. For what it's worth, Victor Miller, the screenwriter, was very annoyed about all this. His script ended just with Alice floating on the lake. It didn't have Jason jumping out or anything. And he disavowed all of the sequels because he's like, no, what's interesting is that it's a mother doing the killing. Like, Jason is just a kid who died. Right. I mean, this movie is... A slasher, but it's also more in line with the psycho bitty genre yes. than anything else. The crazy old woman getting revenge instead of having, you know, just a young white man do all of the killing is very interesting in some ways. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool. And a lot of critics today, I mean, critics of the time despised this movie, <laughs> but like... <laughs> Horror film critics and theorists today talk a lot about the way that because the movie uses these POV shots of the killer and just occasionally will show you like a boot or something like that, it's kind of inviting the audience to assume that the killer is a man without ever saying that it is. Right. And they show the hands, but her hands are like, because she is also because she's older, her hands are kind of not, you know, classic petite smooth-skinned hands that you would immediately think, oh, those are, you know, a traditionally considered woman's hands. And it's also because you're expecting it to be a man, so you impart, you assume they will be a man's hands. All the more so if you are aware of the cultural imprint of these movies, which apparently is entirely from the second one. Is the second one really the one that, like, I guess it if it introduces Jason, that is the most important part. Right. But, I mean, horny teens at a camp is canon. Absolutely. That is film canon at this point, and I think this movie starts that. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, like, slasher movies, as we think about them, of course, like, the progenitor is Psycho, which is 1960. Right. And then the genre really takes off in the late 60s and the early 70s, the way horror does in general. And one of the big reasons is because Hollywood finally ditches the production code and replaces it with the MPAA rating system. And what that means is you no longer have to theoretically accept that any person is going to walk into any movie. So you can just, like, make an R-rated movie. And so a lot of them are made independently, but, like, you get The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas, and both of those are successful. And then you have Halloween, which just is explosive. It makes so much money. It rules. You should watch it, Mark. Like, it is... I I play it on it. It is so good. It's certainly much better than this movie. I mean... I have heard a lot about the new one that's coming out, mostly because one of the real Housewives of Beverly Hills is in it. So all of the Housewives Twitter people I follow are constantly making fun of it. And she has bangs, which is inherently comedy. Well, the new one, Halloween Kills, will be in theaters and day and date on Peacock. Yes, of course. Our beloved Peacock, which I use to watch Friday the 13th. Uh Oh, I did not realize it was on there, but I might have watched it early enough relative to you that it was not then. It's possible. I watched this two days ago, I think. Yeah, so it would have been October. Yeah, yeah, because Scary Movie was on HBO Max. Yes. And this has been our streaming corner. (laughs) Yeah. So we have 
sort of the growth in horror thanks to the death of the production code because you have other big hits in that period too, like The Exorcist and Burnt Offerings and Rosemary's Baby. Also, Bonnie and Clyde plays a big role in it too. Yes, in this shift to violence. In the shift to violence. But Halloween is so explosive that you see this sort of immediate surge in the development of horror movies and especially slasher movies. This is one of the first big ones to get in after it. Nightmare on Elm Street is 84. So... Actually, in part because of Halloween, this movie was the first independent horror film to get distribution from a major studio. So it was produced independently by Sean S. Cunningham, who also directs it. And then once they made it, there was a bidding war between Paramount, Warner Brothers, and United Artists because they all wanted to get a piece of it. Paramount wound up paying like one and a half million for it and made 39 million. So uh, that's a pretty good deal. Pretty, pretty good profit. It was the 15th highest grossing movie of 1980. On a budget of less than $600,000. Yep. Paramount kicked in like an extra million overall for marketing, but still, that is a lot of profit. That is insane. This movie was so much more fun to watch than I was anticipating, so I get it. I get the appeal, even if the critics hated it. Yeah, the critics mostly negatively compared it to Halloween. They were like, this is clearly a Halloween ripoff, which the writer claims it explicitly was. (laughs) and your point (laughs) i mean it it compares very unfavorably like the fact that i watched this pretty quickly after halloween and texas chainsaw i was like oh this is this is the worst one yeah but it's so funny (laughs) it is here's the thing it is funny but that is not what i came in expecting uh yeah i think i knew from just like reading around that this one is not that serious yeah it's also just like I think a lot of the deaths are very fun, and the rest of it, I could take or leave. Except for yeah. Mrs. Voorhees. But, like, I don't Mrs. think the Voorhees. other performances are that great. I don't oh, think no. the movie has any real momentum in any direction. No, that's kind of what I love about it, is it's such a mess that it ha- makes, like, these random choices along the way that sometimes are super interesting and other times are just like, Huh? But that almost works in favor of the deaths because you're just like, all right, I'm watching this. Like, what are they doing now? Okay, whatever. Oh my God, an arrow just went through the bed into his throat? Incredible. Like, it shocks me out of my stupor. I also like how it gets down to everyone except Alice is dead before a dead body is discovered. Yes, which I think is cool. Which, I've never seen a movie where the last girl is already the last girl before she realizes that there's even been a death. Yeah, I did like that. So, I thought that was interesting, because I kept expecting more investigation to be happening. But it really is just a bunch of stalking, and then death, and then a teenage girl fights an old woman, and then chops her head off, and then wakes up in a hospital. That is Chops her head off! In one swing. Uh, pretty impressive. Alice is pretty strong. <laughs> but yeah, you got to watch Halloween because... I will. It does a lot of this stuff like 10 times better that you're talking about. But the th- I think one of the things I liked about this movie is I could tell it was worse. Like, it is also... Uh, you know I enjoy a movie that is just trying its hardest to be better than it is. Oh, yeah. So the other thing the critics really hated about this movie was the violence. Because I think it is... It is at its best when it's violent, but also, like, the kids in the woods slowly being chopped off gave me a little more appreciation for the Evil Dead as just, like, the total bug nuts version of this. Yeah, (laughs) that is true. Where I was like, yes, you have to chop the girlfriend up multiple times. (laughs) That was so funny. I think that's my favorite part of that, is how often they had to go back to her. But critics were, like, very upset about the level of violence. Gene Siskel called Sean Cunningham the producer-director, quote, one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. It's so funny, because this wasn't... It's it's a little shocking, but it's not that violent, ever. Right. Siskel also published the address of Gulf and Western's chairman. That's the company that owned Paramount. And encouraged readers to write to him and complain. All right, Mr. Siskel. <laughs> this is not that violent at all. But it it feels like the next version of the Bonnie and Clyde response. Yeah. Honestly, the Bonnie and Clyde scene is more distressing than any of the deaths in this movie. Agreed. These ones are mostly fun. I was really sad that... Okay. I love Brenda. I was really sad we didn't get to see her, like, actually shot with an arrow. 
I guess they probably didn't have the technology to, like, or the money to afford the technology to successfully shoot her on screen. Yeah, they've already done the impressive managing to not shoot her. Yeah, so I assumed that when she was back at the archery range, her death would be that she was now shot with an arrow because she'd avoided it before. Which is what happened. It it is what happened. I was just kind of hoping to see it. I guess the we don't ever see anyone die except for one throat slit and the arrow through the neck. Everything else you see a swing and then a body. Yeah, Uh, which is very Texas Chainsaw. Um, Speaking of stuff like that, you know this scene in the cabin where Mrs. Voorhees and Alice are, like, going at each other, and Mrs. Voorhees slaps her in the face. Yes. So Betsy Palmer had not done a lot of film work. She was mostly a stage actor, but her car had broken down, and doing this movie would get her enough money to buy a new car. Oh my god. She was like, this seems stupid, but they'll pay me $1,000 a day for 10 days. Incredible. Good for her. But she's like, I'm a stage actor. And on stage, when you slap someone, you slap someone. So she suggested to Adrian King that they rehearse the scene. And during the rehearsal, she just full-on slapped Adrian King in the face. Oh, my God. And she fell over. And she's like, Sean Cunningham, this lady just slapped me across the face. And Betsy Palmer's like, yeah, I did. We're rehearsing the scene. (laughs) And so Cunningham had to come over and be like, okay, so in movies, we don't actually slap people. But on stage, you don't slap people either. You know, that is my experience as well. I think Betsy just may have enjoyed slapping people a little too much. A little bit. So, I wanted to say one other critic thing, which is that Leonard Balton gave it one star. And he later upgraded it to one and a half just because he hated part two so much. And he said that the popularity of Friday the 13th among teenagers was correlative evidence along with declining SAT scores of the downfall of American youth. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. Great to hear, babe. And you just love to hear something like that from Leonard Malton. Ugh. I think one of my favorite things about this movie is Annie. Because... Oh, Annie's great. She has total last girl, or final girl energy. Yes. And so, I was shocked when she died. Truly, I expected so much more of the movie to be about her. You assume she's the lead. You assume she's the lead, and then she dies. And I think that's one of the best choices the movie makes. Because also, Alice is not a traditional final girl because she's implied to have had sex. Wow. Okay, I might watch Halloween later today. You should, it rules. Especially because Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. She's really good in it. Uh... Then I have so many to watch before I can get to Halloween Kills and Kyle Richards. No, because Halloween 2018, whatever year that yeah. was, is a direct sequel to Halloween 78. Oh. You skip all the... There have been three different Halloween movies that say, ignore the continuity, this is a sequel to the original. Three? Well, Halloween 2 doesn't count. Halloween 2 just is a sequel to it. And then twice they've gone back and been like, ignore the other sequels. Which is the one that's like famous for being super gay? Is it Halloween 2 or is it Nightmare on Elm Street 2? I I do not know. There's one that's just like super... Uh, I don't know how to... I think it's kind of like he's in love with the killer. Maybe? I don't know. It's weird. I saw one scene from it. It's another movie where there's just, like, a lot of boys in tank tops because it's the 80s. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) 11th installment, which serves as a direct sequel to the first one. I told you. On the Wikipedia page. That is just so funny. Yeah. So so you just watch Halloween 78 and then you jump to 2018. Yeah. Great. (laughs) My God. I love horror movies. I don't watch a lot of them. I just love the idea of horror movies because they say, who cares? Right. We're making yeah. a movie. There's something pure about it. And also just the fact that like horror fans are loyal almost to a fault. Like they see everything. Like there's basically no other genre where the fans will see pretty much every movie, like even in sci-fi. But the horror fans will go to see everything and they'll go see it in movie theaters. So it's always fun to like go see a horror movie in a theater because there's going to be someone else there and they're going to be having a good time. I feel like this would have been very fun in theaters. Yeah. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think there has been a Drag Race acting challenge where someone played Mrs. Voorhees-esque character. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I mean, an old lady who might 
have schizophrenia or DID or just be a weirdo? I think she's just a weirdo. I really did enjoy how much Betsy Palmer was just chewing every word that came out of her mouth. (laughs) Betsy Palmer is earning her $1,000 a day. She just really made a meal out of it. Everything was the most important word she said. I also enjoyed the reverse psycho, where it was instead of a son with a dead mother, it was a mother with a dead son. Yeah. Very referential. Very Hitchcockian. I was a little alarmed in this interview I was reading with Victor Miller, the screenwriter, where he said he was talking about why he didn't like Jason becoming the villain of the later movies. He said, like, no, the point is that it's a mother. And then he said, quote, Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. And like, I see what you're going for, but also no. Mm, I'd rather not, (laughs) especially the innocent ones. Right. There's nothing inherently wrong with teens having sex at a camp. Granted, if a child is swimming, he should be supervised and not what hot Americans summered. But also, like, the premise of, like, oh, yeah, I'd kill for my kid. You're presumably helping your kid. And Jason is not being helped by any of this. I mean, in her mind, she's protecting other kids. Yeah. That's her motivation is she's trying to prevent other kids from drowning Because counselors are too busy having sex and smoking pot. Or grass, as they call it in this movie. (laughs) It's always so weird hearing in older movies when people genuinely refer to pot as grass and not as a joke. The devil's lettuce. They did film this at at a real Boy Scout camp that is still in operation. That's fun. Yeah, so if you went to Camp Noby Bosco in New Jersey. Of course it was filmed in New Jersey. I mean, there are signs that tell you that. Well, uh, there's signs that say a lot of movies are filmed in places that they aren't, Will. Yeah, but this movie was made very cheaply. I don't think they changed the signs. Fair. Uh, All of the jokes about how the whole U.S. looks like Southern California make me laugh every time. Like, uh, someone was tweeting the other day about how in Freaks and Geeks they have an outdoor lunch area, and the movie or the TV show is set in Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) Outdoor lunch area, very common in Southern California, very impractical in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, I'm at a new school this year, and a lot of the students eat lunch outside, and I'm just like, we're going to have winter. Like, I don't I don't know what you're all going to do. The cafeteria is not big. I assume they just sit in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, probably. Get in your way. I, I don't leave my room. I teach all my classes in the same room, so I walk in at 7.30 and I walk out at 3.15. Perfect. So you can decorate it as much as you want, too. I I do, yeah. It's a lot of fun. The thing is, my building is freezing. So I have a door that goes directly outside from my room for, like, fires and stuff like that. It locks, so, like, I can't just use it as my entrance. But every once in a while during the day, I have to just open the door and just stand outside a little bit to warm up. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, soon, knowing DC, they will switch it to heating, and you will have the exact opposite problem. Well, I'll have the exact opposite solution. Yes. Because in DC... The buildings are always heated so hot everywhere you go. All right. Now that we're on to air conditioner or HVAC in general, I guess. Look, it's a boom time for HVAC discussions, Mark. It is a boom time. My office apparently had their HVAC go down twice in the last week. And both days I was not there. So thank goodness I was not there when it hit 80. Oof. No thanks. All right. So, Will, in case you didn't know. Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help guide conversation. I believe at this point we have told you the whole plot of this movie, which is very minimal. (laughs) So why don't you take us to point one? Yes. Uh, My caveat here is I had a hard time tracking a lot of characters' names. I knew vaguely who most of them looked like, and one of them was Kevin Bacon. So I could just be like, all right, that one's Kevin Bacon. (laughs) I supplied some names on his list through the Wikipedia page. But also, the actor names, cast names, character names, not really that big of a deal. They're all just teens. They also all kind of run together. I thought Ned and Bill were the same character for the first half hour. Yes, me too. They cast very similar looking actors in those roles. But anyway, we got to talk about the, the critical romance of Friday the 13th. This is the original 1981, not the, uh, how many, how many movies have to bring called Friday the 13th? I think we're at, like, 11. 
Well, I'm not talking about sequels. I mean ones that are literally just called Friday the 13th. It looks like just two. I thought there was a third one. Okay. There's Friday the 13th in 1980, Friday the 13th in 2009. When they decided to make this movie, it was originally called A Long Night at Camp Blood. And then they decided on Friday the 13th. So Sean Cunningham took out a big ad in Variety announcing, like, production has started on Friday the 13th. And his plan was, look, someone else might have that title. And if they do, they'll contact us after they see that ad. <laughs> what, what a way to do it. Uh, fun fact I just learned. Yes. Bill... The actor who played Bill, Bing Crosby's son. Yeah, and this is his only theatrical film. Yeah, he is a, according to his Wikipedia page, American investment banker and a former film and television actor. Yeah. Really, Bacon is the only one who has a long film career out of this. The others have very few credits coming in, and for a lot of them, this is their last credit. For some of them, they have like one or two more. Kevin Bacon, of course, he had already been in Animal House. He has a long career after this, obviously. Footloose is 1984, which really launches him to the next level. Adrian King, this is her first appearance. She was also an uncredited dancer in Hair and Saturday Night Fever. She retired from film in 1983 after a really upsetting experience with a stalker, like, who had been tracking her for a while and, like, slipping messages under her door and at one point, like, put a gun to her head. She retired for over a decade and then in the mid-90s came back as an ADR performer. So she does, like, bits of looping voice dialogue. And a lot of good movies, like Jerry Maguire and stuff like that. Wow. That's so upsetting. It's really upsetting. It's upsetting to read about. I can't imagine experiencing it. I really enjoyed her performance, too, because... Yeah, she's good. <laughs> she's very good. And, and that stands that, out in this movie. And it stands out, and none of her choices make any sense, and yet I go with it. Like, the fact that she gets in the Jeep that functions, but it has a dead body, and then just leaves instead of driving away with the dead body... I mean, I get how that's alarming, and you're just like, get away from the dead body. It's a natural revulsion response. Yeah. I feel like you can also just kick the dead body out and drive away. Her survival instincts are not that strong. (laughs) But that's also the dead body, like, that's Steve's body, right? This dude that she's, like, maybe been banging? So, I think it's Annie's body in the car, who she hadn't met before. So... I know it's hard to watch, and I think this is also why I watch Scream, is because the point of Scream is that they've watched horror movies so that they know the rules, and you don't know how you would react in that situation, but I still feel like she should have just driven away. I like movies where characters behave the way audiences say they should and are punished for it. Like, in Prometheus, it's the dudes who say, this situation is creepy, we should leave. They're the guys who get killed. (laughs) Also... Anytime they split up in this movie, you never want to split up because you always need eyes on your back. Yeah, but the the problem in this movie is that they have eyes on each other's backs. Yes. And also, they're too busy banging. Well, that's what I meant. They're staring at each other's butts. Oh, that's not how sex works, Will. Well, you know, don't knock it till you try it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. All right. So you asked me to introduce the romantic points of this movie. Yes. Point one. Will? Uh, Point one is our prologue in 1958. Somebody will sing. Does Marianne kiss as big as I do? How would I know? You. You said we were special. I meant definitely. So, camp is just going on. We got a bunch of counselors hanging out, singing songs. Very classic camp songs on guitar. Seems that Camp Crystal Lake might be a Jesus camp. It might be a Jesus camp, or it might just be 1958. Hard to say. Hard to say. And two of the kids sneak off to a barn, and they're kissing. And then the girl is like, "Uh, does Marianne kiss as good as I do? And the guy's like, I wouldn't know that. She's like trying to catch him and see if he's been kissing other girls. But they do start fiddling with their pants. Yeah, they they go up into the loft of the barn, and they definitely, they don't have sex, but they, like, get handsy, like, shirts come open. Yeah, pants are unbuttoned. They're at least in progress. Yeah, I I feel like they are building towards sex. Yes. But, unfortunately for them, uh, an unknown figure who we take the POV of, which is also very Halloween, although it's done better in Halloween, this unknown figure comes up the loft and slashes their throats with a knife, and they're dead. One of my favorite things about this movie is the throat slashing, because 
none of the throat slashing ever gets remotely near the jugular or the other one. It's very trachea-based, so there shouldn't be as much bleeding. Yeah, but, like, that's what you're here for. Yeah, but it's just, even when it's pretty slow motion and you have a close-up view, the cuts on the throats look so small sometimes. Yeah, but it's like when you go to see a production of Sweeney Todd on stage. You're like, obviously, like, they can't murder a live actor here, but you want to see some blood. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should start murdering more actors on stage. Well, we have... Talked about that on this show where we said years ago that the winner of Best Original Song should have a big bell dropped on them like in Coco, so you have no repeat winners. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah, save it for the award shows, Hollywood. Um, Yeah, so they die, and I think that's point one. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, we never see those people again because they're dead. Uh, point two. Point two. Get ready for that sentence to be said a lot. <laughs> We're told it's the present, which clearly means 1980, just given the amount of time that's passed. It's been 23 years, I think. 22. 20, 22. Yeah. Yeah. We learn through Annie, who is not the lead of the movie, that Camp Crystal Lake, which is now nicknamed Camp Blood, is reopening. And this guy, Steve, his family owns it. And Steve is trying to get it going. And he's been hiring some hot teens to come and work at it. Steve is definitely asking them to take their shirts off as part of the job interview. Yes. And so we start off with, like, a bunch of the counselors working their way up. But Alice, Adrian King, is already there. And she clearly has, like, some kind of funky relationship with Steve. It's unclear necessarily if they have been banging, but they've definitely been making out. And she's drawn him. Yes, she's an artist. You want to leave? I don't know. I may have to go back to California to straighten something out. Come on. Give me another chance. Stay a week. Help get the place ready. By Friday, if you're not happy, I'll put you on the bus myself. All right, Friday. I'll give it a week. It's very odd. Their relationship is so strange because it's just never explored. Yes, it's it's weird. Because, that, well, then Steve is gone for most of the movie. Right. But they clearly have had some kind of physical relationship. And she goes up to Steve and she's like, yeah, this isn't working for me. I want to leave. I'm out. And he's trying to convince her to stay. He eventually says, like, give it another week. By next Friday, if you want to go, I will take you to the train station myself. Like, right before the student or campers arrive, I guess. Yeah. Like, help us get set up. We're still putting these buildings back together. Yeah. (laughs) This camp is nowhere near ready for campers. And yet, I think they have, like, a week to finish. We're told Steve has been working on it for a year, and I'm like, Steve, you're working on it for a year, and you're putting the gutter up now? Like, you should start there so that you don't have more water getting in the way for the entire year you're working on it. Yeah, he's not great at this. Yeah. Yeah, Steve also introduced in a hat, a yellow neckerchief, and short, short jean shorts. (laughs) It's a look. And a mustache. Of course. I don't understand the short shorts in the woods. Not very tick-safe apparel choices happening in this movie. You got a lot of ticks in Jersey. A lot of mosquito bites. These people, whole body, head-to-toe mosquito bites. Anyway, that's point number two. The relationship between Alice and Steve is never mentioned again. Yep. Just to give you some context, Steve goes into town to buy stuff, gets stuck because of a storm, makes it back yeah, to camp. Yeah, his truck can't get going in the mud. Finally makes it back to camp. Maybe we'll see Alice again. And nope, he gets stabbed. Point number three! Uh, Ned. You know, you're beautiful when you're angry, sweetheart. Yeah? Yeah. Would you come up here to help me or to scare me to death? <laughs> God, if you do that again, I'm going to tape you up in the wall to drive. God, but I love that sexy talk. The, the teens are just having a good time. You know, they're doing some work, but they're also just having a good time playing around camp. And Ned goes in the water, and oh no, it looks like Ned maybe can't swim. Yeah, he's pretend he's throwing his hands around. Everyone's freaking out. Some pe- it looks scary. It looks scary. Some people run to get a canoe. One person runs and gets the life preserver, and then two people just kind of jump in to haul him out. Physically. To haul him out, and they get him up onto the floating dock. And one of the gals, do you know which one? I think it's Brenda. So Brenda starts giving him mouth to mouth, and then Ned grabs her and starts making out with her. He sandlots it. Yeah, I think it's Brenda because he's also the one that shoots the arrow close to Brenda. So they have right. the, like, antagonistic relationship. Yeah, I guess it's because of the Sandlot. I did watch this and I was like, right, like, 
the whole like pretend to be drowning to get mouth to mouth like was a cultural meme when we were growing up. It was more the Sandlot than this one as children. Yeah. But it is weird how like as a child I was like, yes, of course, like that's a thing because I only saw the Sandlot once. I have not seen it. I don't think. Maybe I have. Eh. But yeah, so like you said, they have this kind of like flirtatiously hostile relationship where mm-hmm. he fakes drowning. It's mostly him antagonizing her now as I think about it. Yeah, I don't think she likes him very much. I think Brenda likes Bill. Yeah. There's no evidence for any of this. There's not a lot of screen time <laughs> for any of these actors. We are just imparting feelings onto them. Right. And there's also the thing that, as you said, like the bodies start to drop pretty quickly, but people aren't finding them because they're also busy going off on their own. They don't notice what's happening with each other. Right. And by the time that we have three dead, they are starting to be suspicious, but they are three people that would kind of make sense to have disappeared because they know Marcy and Kevin Bacon are out. Or I guess we could just get to point four. Yeah. So point number four. Yes. There's like a rainstorm going on. Uh, but Marcy. Deluge, you could yes. say. Um, I like it. They do have like clearly like rain machines for that. But the first time you get the signal that like this storm is coming and it's supposed to be lightning flashing. It is so clearly like they are just in broad daylight and they're flashing a lamp at the actors. <laughs> like It is the cheapest effect you've ever seen. Oh, yes. This movie wears its budget with pride. So uh, Kevin Bacon and Marcy go off to wander away. They are clearly going to a cabin to get it on. And Ned's being kind of annoying towards them, but they kind of shoo him away. It's going to storm. <laughs> can tear down that valley like a son of a gun. I've been afraid of storms ever since I was a little kid. No, really? <laughs> yeah, I've had this dream about five or six times where I'm in a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And it's raining really hard. It sounds like pebbles when it hits the ground. I can hear it. I try to block out the sound with my hands, only it doesn't work. It just keeps getting louder and louder. And the rain turns to blood. And blood washes away in little rivers. Right, yeah, he keeps trying to, like, come along. And they're like, dude, we are, we are trying to have sex right now. And they have a nice little flirty evening. Like, they dance a little bit in the cabin. They have a nice time. They have sex on the bottom bunk. They're the only couple that actually does have sex. Yes. And I think it's because they're the only actual couple. They're a couple when they come in. So then... Marcy goes off to, or no, it's even, they are having sex, and the camera pans up, and Ned's dead body is on the bunk above them as they're having sex. Which is great. Great shot. So Marcy goes out to the bathroom after they've finished up. While she's in the bathroom, Mrs. Voorhees, I guess, stabs an arrow up through the bed. It's like right as, like... Some of the blood from Ned drips down onto Kevin Bacon. He's like, what's going on? And then Mrs. Voorhees stabs an arrow up through the bed and she through his throat. Strong. Yeah. And then she goes and... It's a pretty great... Ki- it's my favorite kill in the movie. It's my favorite, too. But then she goes and hits Marcy in the head with an axe. And that's the end of point four, because they are dead. They are dead. Point, point five. number five. We're down to two. We're about 40 minutes into this movie. It is not amazingly paced. No. Brenda, Bill, and Alice are hanging out in the main cabin, and Brenda suggests they play Strip Monopoly. Okay, I really don't understand the rules of this. Because we're basically told that what Strip Monopoly means is when you land on someone's property, you take off some of your clothes. It's not clear whether you also pay rent. It kind of seems like you don't. But then what I don't understand is... One, do different pieces of clothing have different values? So, like, if I land on Baltic Avenue, I give you a sock. And if I land on Boardwalk, like, I give you my underwear. And also, when you run out of clothes, do you then start using money? Like, are you just prolonging Monopoly? I don't think the movie put that much thought into the logistics of it. I'm just saying, this gal was like, we're going to play Monopoly the fun way. We're playing Strip Monopoly. She's clearly done it a lot. And I think the rules don't make any sense. We, we don't know. Maybe she has a very complicated system of rules with values that we just aren't aware of. I mean, I think ultimately the value is you don't actually finish the game because you're naked and you have sex. Yes. 
Uh, I also do love that everyone had the appropriate reaction to someone suggesting Monopoly, which is absolute disgust. Because Brenda says, let's play Monopoly, and Alice and Bill are both like, absolutely not. In no world will we play Monopoly until horniness is added to it. Yeah. I played a lot of very unhorny Monopoly in high school because my friends and I were in the pet band, and we had to stay from the end of school until the basketball game started, so we would just play Monopoly to kill time. It's a terrible game. So I was playing Monopoly like twice a week for most of high school during the winter. I hate it. So they're now getting kind of nakey. Brenda's down to just her undies, and then she decides to call it a night. Yeah, so she goes back to her cabin where she gets killed. Oh, part of her thing, too, is um, she left her window open. So she's like, oh, that's right. I got to close my window. Yeah. So she puts on her raincoat over her undies and runs back to her cabin. She dies. She wears a great nightgown at one point, though. Yeah. Stunning. But but now Alice and Bill are left alone. Bill's like, Alice, were you really going to take off your clothes? Because she had just landed where she was going to have to. She's like, I was thinking about it. So they're getting kind of flirty. They eventually kiss, which is nice because kissing is fun. But then they realize that something's amiss. They start to investigate. Bill dies pretty quickly. And then we have... Bill gets extra murdered. He gets arrows and his throat slashed. True. Yeah, he gets it bad. But then Alice and Mrs. Voorhees fight for like an hour. And Mrs. Voorhees has a lot to say dramatically. It's so good. I love her performance so much. Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned? The year before those two others were killed, the counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. It is preposterously over the top. I am obsessed. All right, Will. So after watching all of this, do you find the romances believable? Okay, hard to say because there is so very little. Yes, keep in mind, late teens, unsupervised, drinking in the woods. I'm a hard yes on most of these romances. I think it is mostly believable, especially because there's only one that is an actual relationship. Like, like Alice and Bill, it basically comes down to like, do you want to kiss someone your age who's attractive? Like, yeah. Yeah. I think the the one that I like don't feel like I totally get is the Alice Steve thing. I just don't feel like I totally understand. Yeah, we have no context for it. And and I feel like there's nothing else about Steve to suggest he's like a creepy dude who's like trying to get young women to make out. There's just not enough Steve. So every week we rate the believability on a 10-point scale, one being the least and 10 the most. Where would you rate this? I don't know, like an 8 or a 9? Yeah, the Steve-Alice thing really is what keeps it from being a 10. It just kind of throws me off because then also, like, she clearly wants to get out of the camp. I would take that as she also wants to, like, ditch Steve. And so then that makes her more likely to kiss Bill because she's like, yeah, I want to kiss someone my age. Yeah. I'm going to give it I'm going to give it a nine. nine. What the heck? Why not? It's close to Congo, but it's not quite Congo. It's not quite Congo. Hashtag not quite Congo for anything that feels a little bit like it, but isn't totally there. We all aspire to Congo, but a really great movie can still be hashtag not quite Congo. Make sure you put Congo parentheses 1994 film or whatever year it came out. You can't do that in a hashtag because you can't use punctuation in a hashtag. Okay, then just Congo 1994. I think that's the year it came out. Uh, it's 95, so the official hashtag for a movie that's really good but not perfect is hashtag not quite Congo 95. I was pretty close. You were. Feeling pretty good about that. Frank Marshall would be proud. Do you find them dateable? Um, Alice seems pretty cool. Annie seems pretty cool. Um, I don't, I don't know. They're teens, man. I know. If I was a teen, no. <laughs> Still, probably. Maybe Bill, because he knows his way around a machine. If I was, a, yeah, if I was a teen, Alice probably, or or maybe Annie. Yeah. yeah. Annie seemed a little toxic positivity. Yeah, but also, if I am a teen, it's possible that that would work for me. Uh, do you think any couples will stay together? No, because everyone is dead. Yeah. Except Alice, who I read the first sentence of the Wikipedia summary of Friday the 13th 2. She does not last very long in that movie. No, she's killed pretty quickly. So, you gotta just go with no. Yeah, no. But, Mark, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Uh, The moment she walked on, I was just like, it's Brenda. I don't know what it (laughs) is about Brenda, but she spoke to me. Brenda's my girl. She's my top choice. The nightgown really sealed the deal. Um, 
I'm going to say the old lady who runs the diner. Ooh, she is very, very nice to Steve. She's very friendly. She's very nice to people. She, like, looks out for everybody who walks in there, even Annie, who nobody knows. And she could probably give me some nice pie. Now, Will, many films we've covered have been adapted to the stage as a musical, specifically. Should this be made into a Broadway musical extravaganza? Well, of course, there is a famous slasher musical that's made right around this time, which is Sweeney Todd. So it can be done. It can be done. I think you could do a very fun off-off-Broadway production of a Friday the 13th musical in a, like, terrible New York theater sense. It feels like a Kimmy Schmidt joke. So that's why I think it could be fun, but not good. Well, unfortunately, all the YouTube videos have been deleted, but... In 2013, Connecticut College hosted a workshop of Friday the 13th, the musical. Of course it happened. As far as I can tell, it has never been put on anywhere else, but they did do it. I feel like it would be really fun to go see a slasher, like a camp slasher musical at midnight. I have found a lot of articles that talked about it, including recent articles that all link to these YouTube videos of it, but they've all been deleted. What a shame. Like, who's cracking down on the copyright for this musical that nobody's putting on? Connecticut College, maybe? Trying to remove their associate. Maybe at one point they were only known for this. Okay. I think that's about it for Friday the 13th. I'm excited to watch Halloween, which sounds better, but I did enjoy it. You gotta do it. I just can't believe we've done two horror movies that have been turned into musicals, because The Evil Dead was also a musical. I mean, it's a genre ripe for development. Yeah. Why not? Um, Next week, we are going to be thinking about horror as a genre a lot when we watch the 2000 horror genre parody scary movie it came out in 2000 yes wow it is very old movie yeah 21 years until then you can follow the show on facebook and twitter at love the love pod and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at love the love pod at gmail.com make sure to rate review and subscribe especially on apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show all right last question what is the best piece of dating advice we got from friday the 13th oh boy Um, when you've decided that you should end a relationship, don't get into the trap of, like, extending it for a little time. Like, just end it. If Alice had done that, she would not have experienced the long night at Camp Blood. My advice is always check the top bunk of the bed you are going to have sex in if you're having sex on the bottom bunk. I mean, that does feel like good advice. (laughs) So there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about Rome. Bye. Bye.